0: Benoit Blanc. Uh, Mr. Blanc is a private investigator of great renown.
1: I suspect foul play. I have eliminated
2: no suspects. Will you explain it to us then, detective?
0: Welcome to the now playing podcast Knives Out movie retrospective series. Something is afoot with this whole affair. I know it. I believe you know it too. Hosted by Justin. Welcome, gang. We got a great weekend. Arnie.
2: I cannot overstate my gratitude to be here.
0: And Stuart.
2: Crew, we've arrived. Disruptors have assembled.
0: This episode will contain detailed plot spoilers and strong language.
3: Now, uh, I'm going to
0: record this just to make things easier. We hope you enjoy the show.
1: All right. When's the murder
2: mystery start?
1: Today, we're talking about Glass Onion, A Knives Out Mystery, starring Daniel Craig, Edward Norton, Janelle Monae, Katherine Hahn, Leslie Odom Jr., Jessica Henwick, Madeline Klein, Kate Hudson, and Dave Bautista, directed by Ryan Johnson. This is Arnie, co-host of Now Playing, here with my fellow disruptors. Yep, that's Stuart, or you can call me shithead.
2: <laughs> and this is Justin.
1: So, when I heard there were going to be sequels to Knives Out, I was excited. I had enjoyed that first film quite a bit, and it's so rare that a original movie concept gets sequels that I thought this was a good thing. And then I found out... Oh, it's a Netflix deal. Netflix has signed over $400 million for the next two Knives Out films. This is the first of them.
3: And, yeah, let's look at that math. Because Knives Out cost what, $40, $45 million. You're now saying these movies cost
1: $225 million apiece? Well, that's what you're paying in lieu of box office, right? So... How much did Knives Out earn versus how much they're paying for this?
3: Uh, internationally in theaters, and it's run in theaters, Knives Out made
1: about 300 million. So they're getting this at a bargain. They're saving a hundred million per movie.
3: Uh, all right, <laughs> I did go to theaters for this. Unique experience. I gotta say I've never had this where all right, a movie I know is going to be streaming in a matter of weeks. But because nobody on this call wants to record over Christmas weekends, we're going to see it during its seven-day theatrical run. This thing didn't run for a long time in theaters. You had to act quick around Thanksgiving. They put it out, and then they pulled it with the idea that this is going to be the christmas movie on netflix
1: the thanksgiving movie in theaters only 600 screens and i think netflix would always like a wider release but movie theaters are loath to give money to streamers streaming is the competition They want that 45-day window between when it's in theaters and when it hits streaming, and they want exclusivity. And so, most theater chains refuse to take this movie. AMC is one of the biggest, and they were a holdout. I know that the theaters I like to go to, the ones pretty close to where I live, did not show this. I had to go a little bit further away, about an extra 10 minutes. In order to go see this in a theater.
3: Ten minutes. Poor you. I had to drive <laughs> an hour and a half.
2: I mean, also a little bit vice versa on that, too, Arnie, because the reason this is in theaters is because Ryan Johnson demanded that this be a theatrical release. And so Netflix, who is more concerned with subscribers than they are with box office, said, OK, fine, limited release. And, you know, from the sounds of it, lots of sold-out showings. They probably could have made a lot more if they would have extended this in theaters for another week or so.
1: I'll admit, I expected no one to be going to this. First of all, no trailers or anything. When I talked to some friends of mine about this movie, they didn't even know it was coming out. So, I'm pretty sure Netflix is saving their ad dollars for closer to Christmas when this will be hitting hard and we'll see trailers for it then. But... I had the mindset, nobody's going to be there. I don't need to pre-order my tickets. I look the day of. Now, admittedly, this is in the smaller theaters. You know, they still have Black Panther in the big auditoriums. These were being shown in 20 seat, 30 seat screenings. But it was difficult to find a seat, most of the showings. And they were showing it every half an hour here. But most of the showings were sold out or close to sold out. Really?
3: Okay. Well, I know the general hall is somewhere around 18, 19 million, I believe. And that's, you know, about 10 million less than opening weekend uh, for the original. But yeah, knowing that they did not push this, this trailer wasn't in front of A lot of movies. I did see a trailer. There was a little bit of advertising, but it might have been online or something. I'm not sure how I came about it. But yeah, this movie had a quiet ad campaign and still managed to make a pretty good sized coin. I went twice, yes, a lot in gas to go down to the St. Louis area to watch this film, but I felt like I, all right, full confession, I fell asleep. The first time I watched the movie, I got there. It was not running every half hour. There was a late show and it was a little late for me and I kind of nodded off. So I'm like, well, crap. So I watched it Saturday and then drove back on Tuesday
1: on its last day before they pulled it to watch it again. I also rewatched it on Tuesday because... It's a murder mystery, I felt like if we're going to be talking about it here, better watch it twice, and there were a couple of things, a couple of specific scenes I wanted to see again, so, yes two viewings for me as well
2: i wanted to go a second time but i was only able to get out the one time and man i don't know if it's just my area or what but i went opening day wednesday morning at 11 a.m and arnie you said small theaters this wasn't in the huge auditorium but it was the medium sized one you know 300 400 seats and it was 80 percent filled at 11 o'clock in the morning so i was a little surprised to have i thought i was going to be in a theater all by myself you know but nope quite packed
3: I would say either one of mine were packed but there were people there both times and so yeah I felt like it was well attended but
1: 30 percent 40 percent maybe yeah I had one extra seat next to me between me and the group of people beside me it seemed to be mostly middle-aged people men women all races but they all seemed to be around my age plus or minus 10 years
3: it was Thanksgiving, so I felt like pe- there were families. There were people with younger and people
2: that brought grandma, is what I could tell. I might have ended up at a fan showing, because, you know, that's what I assume too. Maybe retirees or whatever, but, <laughs> man, everybody in the theater was laughing right along, so.
3: <laughs> and it was interesting, too. This movie starts, and an end comes down, and, like, it doesn't go, ba-ba, doesn't say Netflix, but there was somebody in the crowd that just went, Netflix! Like, they knew. They all knew. Or maybe not all of them. But some of them knew that they could have waited to see this thing stream. But I guess they wanted to be the first. Or they wanted to have that communal experience. Or they wanted to get out of their house after Thanksgiving. I don't know what. But yeah, it doesn't necessarily seem to be a stigma to know that this is streaming. Some people still want to go to the movie theaters. I think Halloween had a similar reception. Halloween Kills. Halloween ends. Maybe the movie theaters aren't going to die. Have you seen Ticket Prices lately? (laughs) I'm just saying that you would think that everyone would have waited a matter of weeks to
1: watch and have the same experience at home. Well, it goes back to the fact that this was only on 600 screens. That means everybody had to be compressed. That's like a quarter or less of a normal wide release film. Yep.
3: But they still, again, they still pulled in, you know, a decent box office size. For 600 screens
1: to pull in almost 20 million is pretty good. Yeah, they came in third for the weekend. I mean, that's really good for something so small of a release. And this
3: also, I mean, it played at film festivals. It had good critical buzz. There is talk about it going in all categories for the Oscars this year. Certainly they're going to try again for original screenplay. My hopes were up. I'll just go ahead and say goodwill for that first movie, Fingers crossed. I really wanted this one to be good. It's kind of my last best hope as we get nearing to the end of the of the year to find like a movie that I truly loved. And so I'm hoping Glass Onion is it. Although I got to say,
2: Glass Onion? This is the title of your movie? <laughs> Sounds like a crappy lounge, right? From the early 80s. Well, you're not far from the truth when it gets into the movie.
1: Hmm. But yeah, and they had to put a Knives Out mystery there. They didn't Mm -hmm. trust the audience to know, you know, it's not like Goldfinger said a James Bond adventure, but here they're going to tie it all in together. Kind of like Solo, a Star Wars story.
3: It's worth pointing out Knives Out and Glass Onion are rock song titles. Knives Out is a Radiohead song. It was a single. I think people might know that song.
2: Glass Onion is like a deep cut on the White Album of the Beatles. Interesting. Yeah, and you know, I gotta say, I'm the type of person that needed that little tagline letting me know that it was a Knives Out mystery because having not seen the first one until we came to, you know, review it, I had heard of this one before I watched that. So knowing that these two were tied together is helpful to me, you know, because I didn't know what Knives Out meant before sitting down to watch that first one.
3: Yeah, not to mention it's been three years. This is not forever, but in the age of Marvel, where they you got to constantly have new product, or you, the fear is people will forget you. Yeah, three years in a pandemic later, it might have been a challenge to remember that quirky little movie from Thanksgiving 2019. But let's remind them, Arnie, tell them the plot for Glass Onion, and we'll see how well it holds up
1: with nice out. Tech billionaire Miles Braun, played by Edward Norton, regularly hosts parties on his private island. Even though this is May of 2020, Miles isn't about to let COVID stop a good party. He invites five people to the island where Miles has staged an extravagant murder mystery where his friends have to figure out who killed him. A fake death, of course. Those friends are men's rights activist YouTube star Duke, played by Dave Bautista. Duke brings along his girlfriend Whiskey, played by Madeline Klein. Connecticut Governor Claire, played by Katherine Hahn, former model-turned-sweatpants designer Birdie J, played by Kate Hudson, and Birdie brings along her assistant Peg, played by Jessica Henwick, Miles' lead engineer Lionel, played by Leslie Odom Jr. All four of these people are wealthy, thanks to Miles, who has bankrolled their every endeavor. But the fifth member is an outlier, Andy Brand, played by Janelle Monet. Andy was Miles' partner when they founded the tech company Alpha, but Miles had screwed Andy out of her half of the company. Miles was supported in court by the other four, all of whom lied saying Alpha was Miles' sole idea. Yet Andy has shown up on the island to play Miles' game. While Miles only sent out five invitations, a sixth guest also arrives, famed private detective Benoit Blanc, played by Daniel Craig. Initially, Miles is confused by Blanc's arrival, but he quickly warms to the idea of the world's premier detective taking part in Miles' murder mystery. That is, until Blanc solves the murder mystery before the game even really began, leaving the guests with a weekend of nothing to do. Blanc fears a real murder may occur, as all the guests have a reason to want Miles dead. Andy's reason is obvious, she was screwed out of the company. Governor Claire is being coerced by Miles to approve an experimental clean energy power plant. Scientist Lionel is equally being coerced to sign off on this new energy source, despite it being highly flammable and not thoroughly tested. Birdie J had her sweatpants made in a sweatshop, and Miles was making her take the fall. And Duke wants to be an anchor on Miles' news network, but Miles doesn't want the controversial streamer to taint the channel. Yet while everyone seems to want Miles dead, when a real murder occurs, it's Duke, not Miles, who falls over dead. He's seemingly poisoned, but he had been drinking from Miles' glass. Was Miles the intended victim? Fortunately, Blanc is on the case, and has been on the case. In a flashback, we discover that the Andy on the island is an imposter. The real Andy is dead of an apparent suicide. Andy's twin sister Helen suspects foul play as Andy had just found a smoking gun that would prove Alpha was Andy's original idea. When Andy is sent the invitation to the island party, Helen goes to Blanc to hire him and find out if Andy had been murdered. Blanc agrees to investigate, but convinces Helen to dress up as Andy and attend the island party. Only the murderer would know Andy is dead, so her presence at the party would throw the murderer off guard. Blanc never was invited to the party but takes Andy's invitation as his own. Back in the present, we see Blanc solve the case. Duke was murdered by Miles. Duke knew Miles was at Andy's house. During the weekend party, the news breaks of Andy's death, and Duke correctly assumes Miles killed Andy. He tries to use this information as leverage to get the news anchor job, so Miles switches Duke's glass with his own and kills the YouTuber. Miles points out all this evidence is circumstantial and won't hold up in court, so Helen, now revealed as not being Andy, sets fire to Miles' beach house, and as it's run by the experimental power source, the house explodes, taking with it Miles' hope of owning the energy source of the future. And Benoit Blanc moves on to his next case, as credits roll. As we get started, I gotta
3: say, I haven't seen this yet. I was prepared, hmm, feels a little early, but they're on the cutting edge here, to actually go back to May 13th, 2020, right as the pandemic's happening. Have you guys seen this? Have you gotten nostalgic for masks and
2: quarantines and pods yet? It it felt (laughs) weird, right? Like, I know the pandemic's not technically over, but the scenes here early on were like, whoa, yeah, remember COVID? Mm. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, yes, I do.
1: Yeah, as somebody who's still working from home, I remember it very well. And as people who go to the office are still catching COVID. But yeah, it was kind of funny to see, like, I remember when delivery men were staying six feet away. And so when Catherine Hahn is like throwing her coat over her face to sign for a package and all of that, it is a little bit retro. It's set in May of 2020. So that would be about two months into the pandemic. This is when, if you remember, we were still washing our groceries after we brought them home.
2: Yeah, rubber gloves and people go into the store in hazmat suits at this point. Mm -hmm.
3: Yeah, it's an interesting thing to dramatize, and congrats for them for taking this on. I think it helps color the whole idea of, yeah, that isolation. That if you got a puzzle box in the mail, you would think you'd be like, cute, but I'm not going to Greece right now. But these five individuals are going to break quarantine because they are good friends with a billionaire. And walk me through this. I mean, we'll get a lot in this movie about their
1: history, but why is he so rich? Because he started the company called Alpha. And Alpha is an ubiquitous tech giant. There's the Alpha car, Alpha tech. Mm
3: -mm, No, it says that everything started that he just faxes crazy ideas all the time. Uber for biospheres, AI for dogs. Things that are like, okay, what am I supposed to do with this? But the one that took off, that when he started doing this, the one that got Alpha off the ground before it was
1: anything else was child equals NFT question mark. NFT? Well, no, that wasn't the first. That was (laughs) one of the many crazy ideas he faxed. The very first thing was, was an app called Alpha. Now, what does that app do they're not going to get into the details of his business, but, you know, we're supposed to take him as like an Elon Musk type. Yeah, he's the
2: personality and he's the brains.
3: Right. This was a collaboration we'll find out that he, in fact, is not the idea man, but the marketing guy. Like he takes other people's work and polishes it and passes it off as his own is the reason why he'll be so contemptible and why someone might want to kill him. But this is interesting because he is hosting his own murder. And because we know that this is a Knives Out movie, I'm fully expecting... I don't know. It reminded me recently when we watched Fletch. The idea that someone might actually want to be murdered or is hosting their own murder party. You
1: wondered what the angle was here. I thought, and I just had misheard this somewhere... But I thought that this entire plot was that Edward Norton, as Miles, was hosting his own murder mystery, but then he'd actually be murdered. I expected Edward Norton to be basically a cameo in this film.
3: Of course. Yeah, he has to be the one to die because, again, the movie last time, Harlan was... The thing that uh, had made all the other people rich. We had all these satellite people. You had the guy at the center die right away, too, I want to point out. Within the first minutes of the movie, we had a death. This is going to be structured very differently in that it's going to lead us to believe we're going to the murder of Edward Norton. If you even know that Miles is being played by Edward Norton. I mean, it will take an hour before anybody drops, and it's not Edward
1: Norton. I love this opening, though, where the invitations are sent out for the island party. It introduces us to all of the suspects, presumably, of the murder, all the people coming to the island, and because it is COVID, they're all on a group call, and the way that they use split screen, it's kind of like Zoom, but it's more inventive because they'll do triangles and different shapes with the split screening going on here and instantly i know the vibe of the first knives out is back because i'm laughing my ass off when it's duke dave bautista's character his mom is the one solving half of the problems (laughs) by screaming in the background it's a fibonacci sequence
2: <laughs> and it's also the script, you know, giving us what we want, which is to feel like we're part of it. We feel like we're there helping solve this mystery box as well to a certain degree, right? And it's also informing us of all these suspects, what their level of intelligence or or not will be.
3: Yeah, I feel like some characters make a bigger impression than others, right? Like let's start with Claire. She's the first one we meet and the one that i never feel like i know. Katherine Hahn is usually a big comedic presence, you know. She had a a big role in WandaVision, so big i think she's getting her own spin-off there, but i don't really get her at all. Like she's basically an environmental governor from Connecticut who i don't know. Like i feel like some of these people are obviously contemptible and her I
1: don't know why I should hate her. She and I feel the same way about Lionel, the scientist. We're introduced to him being defensive of Miles, saying, you know, is Miles crazy or is Miles a genius that child equals NFT idea paid for an entire building? But why is he contemptible? He is fighting against Miles, who is trying to pressure him to green light a new energy source.
3: Yeah, we don't know it in those moments, but we can see he's working in a giant, it looks like a space shuttle hangar or something like that. And he's got a, the argument is the fuel he's making is not ready for a manned flight.
2: Right. And, you know, like you said, sir, we don't know it yet, but both of these characters, you know, feel like they're doing the right thing. But at the end of the day, when push come to shove, they went with money rather than doing the right thing.
3: Yeah, I. but I guess in Knives Out, it was pretty clear from the introductory scenes of all the characters, they had some huge flaws, right? They were full of sin and vice and were people you wouldn't mess with. You were worried about them. And yeah, these two feel kind of nice, and I don't know, like like I can't imagine them wanting to hang
1: out with Bertie J and Duke. Yeah, they are much bigger personalities and I think they're just playing it broader. That Kate Hudson is here playing so big as this airheaded model turned fashion designer of sorts and who's in trouble because <laughs> she used racial slurs ignorantly on Twitter.
3: All the time. That's the latest one. That's why her assistant took away her phone, but she was running a fashion magazine, and apparently all that gets said, I can only imagine is blackface, but she did some, quote, homage to Beyonce that was taken the wrong way.
1: For Halloween, yes.
3: <laughs> I can imagine how Kate Hudson doing Beyonce would be wrong in so many
2: ways. <laughs> That character's great because, I mean, she is airheaded and you don't feel like there's any malice behind her accidental racism, but here she is constantly spreading it.
1: Yeah, it's, it's not with malice, but yet there's just a blackness in there if that inherent racism is what comes out so casually. <laughs> and then you get Dave Bautista as this former Twitch streamer who had been hawking rhino pills. Without any real rhinoceros, though, right? Real rhinoceros was not used. Yeah,
3: he's he's wearing a shirt that's like an energy drink or something that's got like this apexosity on it. It's got, it uses a rhino as an icon. It claims someone calls it rhino horn boner pills at some point. It just sounds like a, a faulty product that it promises to have medicinal properties that yeah this
2: guy can't deliver on
3: you love this character
2: i don't well i don't know that we're supposed to because i feel like all these characters aren't necessarily anybody in particular but amalgamations of people that are real like this guy feels like it's kind of taken on joe rogan yes yeah for sure right kind of that vibe yeah so yeah i I don't know that we're supposed to like him but yet you can see why certain people do Flock to that YouTube channel? No, let me be clear. You think this is funny? I think that this is too broad. Right, that's what I'm saying. I can see how... A personality like this does garner a certain following but we as the audience aren't supposed to be among that following we're supposed to see this as a vapid type of person
3: i think we're supposed to think it's hilarious that he carries a gun in his crotch and is just like this over the top like i don't know like i just eh, rubs me the wrong way this guy i don't think that this line of attack is particularly
1: sharp It isn't the greatest commentary on media personalities. It is not as sharp as the way Knives Out deconstructed families and the politics of 2019. But I am enjoying these broad characters. I definitely enjoy Bertie J and Duke a lot more than Lionel and Catherine Han's governor.
3: (laughs) Yeah, those two don't even register for me. Throughout the whole movie, I don't get them, other than they kind of feel like just spineless people that got involved in science and politics and now feel like they have to owe Miles favors. But yeah, these other two are contemptible because they are so stupid. And again, they like not wearing masks in and, and so many ways. You can see like Bernie J when she shows up in Greece, where, like it's like a, a mesh mask. Like, what good is that even going to be? And then the other ones, like they're not even wearing masks and they want to hug Catherine Hahn and she's like, don't come near me. She's trying to stay six feet away. But yeah, I do love the puzzles. And I'm wondering, watching it the second time I tried to figure it out, is there something... Ryan Johnson is trying to say with these puzzles. I noticed early on, the tic-tac-toe board, like, spelled Fox. For some reason, there was an F there, and then later, there's an N that's supposed to be about North, but it also looks like the Netflix N, and I'm wondering, just going to put it out there, maybe it can be decoded, if he's talking about the distribution of this movie, and how it wound up, like, not being a Lionsgate sequel, but a Netflix movie. It feels like there's something there, with all of these projections, and and,
1: you know, there's a music box at some point. Yo-Yo Ma gets involved. I could tell you a Fibonacci sequence, but I don't know enough about stereograms and compasses to decode all of this and fugues.
2: It also feels like something we won't know until at least the next Knives Out movie's finished and Ryan Johnson can come out and tell us those type of things.
3: Will there be a commentary track on Netflix? Like, because eventually, like,
1: I, I don't know, will they put this out on disc? Netflix stuff has come out on disc. Usually it's a year after it premieres on Netflix. And to my knowledge, I've never seen a movie with a commentary on Netflix. You can find them on Amazon, iTunes, but not on Netflix.
3: Yeah, because, I mean, I think you can feel, I'll, I'll just go ahead and say it about this movie. You can feel he has so many little ideas that are going on in the background. There are so many things, just like that house in the first movie. You can see all of this stuff weaved in and out of it that he's got to have thoughts about. There's reasons why all of this stuff is here. And it would be kind of nice to hear his thought process on this movie because so much about it is in the little fine details. Not unlike the title symbol, this is a glass onion where there are a lot of
2: layers, and yet you can kind of see right through to the, to the middle of it and see what's going on pretty quickly. Some of that plays out on screen, too, because looking at the IMDb, I didn't realize it at first, but when they first show up at the island and they're getting their inoculations or whatever that makes them good, the gun in the throat. Ethan Hawke, yeah. Yeah, Ethan Hawke making a little appearance there.
1: Yeah, I did not recognize him. I read about it later that it was him with that ponytail and things the second time I saw the film. You didn't recognize him? No, I didn't
2: recognize him.
1: Looks just like he did
2: in Moon Knight.
3: Yeah, he looks like Ethan Hawke. I mean, how how did you not recognize him he's not even wearing a funny nose or anything
2: he's got the same outfit on for moon Knight. i'm pretty sure he walked right off the set and onto the dock for this <laughs> scene
1: he had sunglasses and a ponytail and i just was looking at the actors who i knew were going to be main characters and i just wasn't looking at ethan hawk <laughs>
3: But the joke of this is is that in if you can imagine in twenty twenty someone already has the cure. I mean it good, it, it plays into that whole conspiratorial notion that the uh, you know what, COVID was a plot of somebody's. And so that yes, that Ethan Hawke can run up and zap you in the mouth and say, You're good, no more masks, there's no more COVID for you because you're you're connected to the rich guy. Again, talks about uh, the privilege that we're about to step into. This private island that they all those puzzle boxes opened up to an invitation asking them to come to this private island to a literal glass onion. And there was one other person that got this. It's worth pointing out. It's a very brief scene and she has a very different attitude as to how to get to that invitation. But we do see... Janelle Monet, in this case it is Helen, though we're led to believe it's Andy, taking a hammer and busting
1: open that box. <laughs> Again, just a nice little laugh moment and a much easier way to solve it than... <laughs> figuring out the morse code of a tic-tac-toe board
2: but what a great use of misdirection for stuff that we're not going to learn until halfway through this movie right like because seeing these other people solve it it tells us a little bit about each of these characters and Mm -hmm. seeing this character home alone just smashing into it not caring i mean initially i thought a little bit less it's like hey come on do the work if you want to get into this don't just take the easy way oh i the opposite I
1: actually applauded her. It's kind of like that scene in Men in Black when Will Smith drags the table over while everybody else is tearing the paper and can't write. And I'm like, yes, just save yourself the time, hammer into the middle and figure out what's in that box. I appreciated the bluntness. <laughs>
3: yeah, but look at her face, too. Like, she's not playing games. This is not a character that's having fun and, and wanting to solve a puzzle. Uh, we will find out that Helen is grieving. She's in a garage opening this. I believe the same garage that her sister was found dead in. So, yeah, she has a different agenda by getting this invitation. She's going to take this box to the next character, Benoit Blanc, who is apparently spending his early months of the pandemic in the bathtub. Oh, and
1: what a association of people he has on Zoom.
3: All connected to mysteries. They're actually all thematically related. Angela Lansbury's obvious, right? We had Murder, She Wrote. There was a clip of that in the last movie. But I don't know if it's really well known, but Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, the basketball player, writes Sherlock Holmes novels now.
2: And they're very good. Really? Like, he's he's really known for it. He's a really smart mystery writer. That's the one I did not connect. That's where I was like, oh, this is just kind of random.
1: Mm-mm. Yeah, I thought he was a punchline. I didn't know
2: No, 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 no. Yeah,
3: yeah. He, check it out. His Sherlock is no joke. And Stephen Sondheim is known for musicals, but he used to host murder parties. This was actually, he was like the man that came up with all of this stuff. He co-wrote a movie I put in the book called The Last of Sheila that this movie is kind of a remake of. So again, it makes sense as he has that reputation as a, a murder host and a puzzle maker. That he would be on this, you know, Zoom call as well.
1: Yeah, the reason Benoit Blanc is singing Soundheim in the last one was a nod. And yeah, the last of Sheila, Ryan Johnson has said in interviews, was a huge influence on this. Mm-hmm. Natasha Lyonne, I don't know. I mean, Russian Doll, maybe. It's kind of a mystery. Nope, nope. It's just premiering now on Netflix. Poker Face, a new series from Ryan Johnson, starring Natasha Lyonne as an investigator.
3: Oh, okay, all right. Well, I like Natasha Leone. I would be on a Zoom call with her. I think she's entertaining. Sure, I'm not against it. But we can see none of them are able to rouse Benoit out of the tub. He needs a mystery. It's not enough to hang with people that write mysteries or are involved with mysteries and come knocking. We're led to believe that. But he got a sixth box. It will take a long time to realize that Helen, the woman that took the hammer to her box, her sister's box, is bringing it to him. And it is uh, a design of this movie that we think that they're all meeting for the first time when, in fact, a whole... Half a movie has happened uh, by the time they're on that yacht
2: heading to the private island. And, you know, going back to the first movie, what I really loved was the locations and just how homey it felt being in this old mansion and old, old East Coast area. And we get a little bit of that here with Benoit's place, right? We see his terrace of his apartment building. And in the background, we see some old Gothic Architecture behind him. I'm not quite sure where. Somewhere in Manhattan, I'm guessing. Mm-hmm. New York for sure. Yeah, brings in a little bit of that vibe from the first movie before we head off to this modern glass palace.
3: Yeah. So yeah, let's track this. So you're saying it was an app for some reason ten years ago. These guys were all nobodies that hung in a bar called the Glass Onion that closed the next year. Did wasn't even a successful bar. And they weren't successful people. But all of a sudden, like within two years, he is a multimillionaire, inviting them on murder parties annually. And it doesn't bother you that you don't know what he invented. It bothers me. Like Harlan wrote mystery novels. I can understand how that generated income. I need to understand why this idiot
2: has money. For me, it's enough to just know, you know, 10, 15 years ago, people were writing apps or being associated with apps that made them overnight millionaires. I mean, you would have people popping up all over Silicon Valley with the next big app. And I mean, look at Angry Birds. That was a dumb little app somebody made over a weekend. And those guys are multi-billionaires now and movies being made of it. So tell me what that app was. Again,
3: thats I feel like that's central to my acceptance of him being
2: so successful. I mean, do we know exactly what Harlan wrote? We know he wrote mystery books, but we don't know the title of his big hit one or whatever. The idea is that he made it by using technology.
1: Yeah, I'm fine saying he is just this Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk type person who started with an app and now is, yeah, he got his fingers in everything. He's the head of a tech conglomerate.
3: But those guys did something. I mean, like,
1: it's... Elon Musk did nothing.
3: Maybe I don't know his story, but my sense
1: is that they got to
3: where they were through some level of intelligence, whereas this guy...
1: He inherited the money and bought into Tesla, which was already a company, and then he helped promote it. He helped market it, but he did not build anything.
3: Okay, so maybe it's specifically Elon Musk that they're ribbing here. I can say this much. Yes, lots of people have had overnight success. And maybe it's unfair because, I don't know, they they didn't work that hard on the thing that got them billions. But this guy that we're going to be shown here is a blithering idiot. Like we'll find out that he really doesn't understand anything. When we see him in the flashback, he's literally wearing the outfit that Tom Cruise was in Magnolia. I think we're to think of him as that character, literally. And I just, it's hard for me to buy that that is Steve Jobs or Bezos. Like I i see those individuals very differently from somebody that's all Flash
1: and no brains. And when he speaks, when Miles speaks, a couple of times I caught it. I'm like, did he use the wrong word there? Oh, I must have just misunderstood what he said. <laughs> because <laughs> that's not the right word.
3: <laughs> yeah, in 8, I let go. But it, over time, it started to bother me. I noticed before the movie called out that he was using malapropisms. And it was like, uh, what does that mean? It's ultimately to mean that he's not as smart as he
2: likes to pretend he is, but too powerful for anyone to correct him. Yeah, he's he's all style, no substance, but he's trying to project substance. And we find out that's kind of at the core of him, too, when we start finding out more and more about his obsession with the Mona Lisa. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's there's oh, so
3: many things that he's co-opted. I, I think that is why he's considered the ultimate evil here, is that he takes other people's good ideas and passes it off as his own possessions. And treats it just so flippantly. We'll see him, when he's introduced on the beach, he's playing Blackbird, the Beatles song, on the actual guitar that John Lennon wrote it on. And then he just kind of, he's like, he gets Birdie's reaction and he just kind of throws and and breaks the guitar. (laughs) And the Banksy made his glass dock. I mean, like so much of this just feels like name dropping. And when
1: they're coming up on that dock, I love that Lionel is talking to the captain and the captain's going pieces yet oh is that how you say the island's name in greece no he's saying piece of shit the banksy yes. dock is a piece of shit <laughs> yeah
3: if not the whole island or the person that owns it yeah like that's just the, the i don't think it's the official name of the island it's what this captain thinks of what he's doing <laughs> but yeah and, and again another one is like oh phil glass Phil, that Philip, like everyone else calls him. My good friend Phil Glass composed the Hourly Dong, which is just like someone going dong. Both (laughs) a parody of Philip Glass music and a continuation from last movie. This is a cameo. Uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt... I don't know. He was the star of Looper. Brian Johnson made that movie with him. He is the voice of the hourly dong. <laughs> they got him in a recording booth to do that. Last movie, he was the voice of the crime film. That Marta's sister was watching. He got to do voice cameos in both of these movies. I think it's something we can watch for when the third movie comes.
1: Yeah, he was the star of Brick. He's been in virtually everything Ryan Johnson has done. I don't think he got into Star Wars, but everything else.
2: There's all kinds of little jokes like this that are, I think, kind of Ryan Johnson centered. You know, I mean, it's you talked about the guitar that was John Lennon's that he just tosses away after he gets the reaction. Well, watching the bonus features for the first one. The movie was scored by his cousin. So his cousin's a composer for this. And they were geeking out because they got to record at Abbey Road Studios. And they still have, you know, mics that are called John and and all that stuff there. So they have a Paul mic. And this is the same mic that they recorded the cello for Abbey Road and Let It Be On and stuff like that. So just if you have that information about Ryan Johnson, he's just kind of writing that right into the script here. It gives you a little extra chuckle. I, and I'm going to just say, I feel like this movie... It was true
3: and an asset last time. It was so densely layered. I feel like this movie has almost too much of that. Like the fact that this movie takes an hour to get to the murder because it's got to spend so much time talking about Jeremy Renner hot sauce and kombucha, (laughs) alcoholic kombucha made by Jared Leto.
1: Like that's just (laughs) excess, right? Like that's just someone that can't stop riffing. See, here is a plus and a minus of this film. One thing that I like about this film is it's got a smaller cast, much quicker to introduce. You know, you don't have the spouses as well as the children as well as the grandchildren in the last film. So we've got a much smaller core pod of characters But yeah, it does seem like it's taking an awfully long time to get things going. When is the murder mystery there? I'm enjoying spending the time with the characters, but they're not really even talking to Miles. Miles starts giving his disruptor speech around 30, 35 minutes into the movie. I was really kind of clock watching the second time regarding the pacing.
2: Mm -hmm.
3: It is an hour, an hour before
2: Bautista dies. Yeah, right. But that's our knowledge going into this movie and where we are now. But on a second viewing, we already know the murder took place before this event even kicked off.
3: Yes, but you're saying so it's more satisfying that there's a mystery to solve right away. But we don't know that. Again, maybe I'm alone on this, but I feel like this movie is too languid. Like, I love a slow build, I love all the detail work that he's willing to do, I love that this onion has so many layers, but I do not love that it takes an hour to get to where the first movie did
1: in two minutes. I'll agree, I know, an hour is too long. I think that I wondered when somebody was going to die, when there was going to be a mystery, and yes... Like the last one, it's very counterintuitive the way Ryan Johnson structures this story and when he inserts his flashback that does tell us about the actual murder being investigated. But not knowing that for the first hour of the movie, I'll just say it's a damn good thing I'm liking these actors on screen. Because if I wasn't enjoying their performances and really soaking up being the uninvited seventh member of this party on the island is how I felt. And if I wasn't having fun at the party, then I probably would just instantly not recommend this movie for taking too long in that first hour.
3: No, Arnie, the uninvited seventh guest is
2: Daryl. I don't know if you guys know this, Daryl. Oh, he keeps saying he's not there. <laughs> well, he's the only other returning actor other than Daniel Craig, which is kind of crazy. He was he also played the second assistant to the inspector in the original movie. He was kind of the fanboy there. He must be
1: a friend of Ryan Johnson's, like a really good friend, because he was on the commentary for the first film.
2: <laughs> yeah, you gotta assume, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Someone they just just dragging along. All this setup, this is an hour long setup for, you know, you gotta find out what you guys feel about this, which is either gonna be a great joke or not that once the murder mystery that has been laid out is solved before it even gets started, I think I chuckled at it. I thought it was great that Benoit was able to unravel that mystery before they even got a chance to think about it. Well, that feels like that should
3: come earlier, too. If they're being invited to solve the murder of Miles Braun, Edward Norton, like you would think that he'd want to get to that like right away. But again, there's just so much lounging by the pool. They have to do so much setup, I guess, character work. And it's not bad. Again, I don't know what you'd cut. I just know you'd make less of it. That's what I would argue, is that what you're talking about is when they finally are ready to sit down at the glass onion, which is uh, literally a giant glass onion. Like, they, they make 2010 references to it i don't know exactly why but it kind of looks like the stargate i guess that yes benoit is eager like can we start now what do we win can i have an ipad because (laughs) i already have figured you out you think you're smart but i'm much
1: smarter and you're dumb (laughs) but again blanc is just putting on a performance here because he's not even here for that he is just affecting this to try to keep people off their guard but is solving the fake murder before the crossbow bolt is even fired, and the timing that right when he's done, then the bolt fires, and Edward Norton is sitting there just looking kind of pissed as blood is spurting out of his chest. (laughs) And it's also kind of cheap, too. Like, he fully admits that even though he's going to be
3: murdered, it's not going to stop him from hanging out with these people. Like, he's not going to go and disappear and let them solve his murder. It was like he was going to still, like, lounge around and talk about what great disruptors they all are. He wasn't really committing to all of this and yeah so basically from what I could understand the reason why Benoit was able to figure it out was that he was pushing this old magazine cover with Kate Hudson's character Birdie she was wearing a stone that he's now wearing around his neck she was sat in a position where she was directly behind the glass sculpture that is firing the crossbow Uh, these are little tips i don't know if we could have picked it up or anyone could have picked it up but the point is i think we're to think lesser for miles
1: because he thought it would take all weekends, and it took a matter of seconds and also because he hired someone to write this murder mystery this wasn't his murder mystery Gillian Flynn, the writer of Gone Girl, who did all of those puzzles, if you remember. And he talks about, when discussing with Blanc, how did Blanc get to the island, he's like, my puzzle maker only had time to make the five boxes, so there was not a sixth box. So it's called out later, but I did catch it the first time that, like, he's not doing any of this. He hires someone to make puzzles. Yes, And it also sets
3: up a mystery that was true in the first movie. Why is Benoit Blanc here if, you know, a mystery person has invited him? The host of this island did not know he was coming, pulled him aside, and is like, I did not make a box for you. So, what does that mean? We have another person that has mysteriously hired Blanc, and could they be... The murderer that's going to, you know, engineer the real murder, not the fake murder with a squib of blood that comes with a fake crossbow. But is someone really going to kill here? That is what Benoit proposes to Miles. But there's so much here. I mean, we haven't talked about the car that's spinning on the roof. We haven't talked about the fact that there's this seductress whiskey that Miles sleeps with. Yeah, that he's loaned out the Mona Lisa from the Louvre because France is... Well, it's a pandemic and they need all the money they can, so... And the Louvre is
1: closed, so...
3: Yeah, might as well load it out to this guy so he can impress a bunch of world leaders that are coming next week because they're all going to learn about Clear. We haven't talked about Clear and the what the chemist has made, the, the new fuel. There's just a lot of elements here.
1: Clear spelled with a K, the energy of the future. <laughs>
3: I mean, this feels like a lot, right? Like maybe too many elements. It's not that there's too many elements. It's that they have to go through all of this before we can get into the mystery. And that's the problem. The fake mystery and the real mystery when Bautista goes down
2: is one hour. And we needed to have this integrated better. I don't know. I feel like we needed to learn more about these characters as we're going along. So I think the pacing is fine. You know, we we don't know any of these characters at all. And by time Batista goes down, we understand who most of them are and what their motivations might be and how they're even connected. You know, at first, it just seems like a diverse group of people that why are they even here together?
3: I don't know. I feel like I get too much of Duke and Bertie
1: and not enough of Lionel and Claire. I'll agree with that, too. I mean, Stuart, you and I are seeing the same movie, but it's bothering me less than it seems to be bothering you because I'm having a good time.
3: I mean, I'm calling it out as a problem. I'm not going to say that it's uh, not recommend. I'm just saying that I can feel the strain of this movie. Like, it's not enough just to be cute. Like, we need to be doing something. And I feel like this movie is coasting on its end jokes and its little digs when we really need to be getting into it. Like uh, The other mystery that's happening, it's worth pointing out, is the fact that Andy is there, or Cassandra is actually her real name, and named so probably because in Greek myth, Cassandra was the seer of the future, and she is the one credited with at least, uh, she's half the genius of whatever Alpha has done, she wrote on some napkin, and boy, I wish I understood this. But she came up with something that was so great that she wrote on a borrowed napkin that it is foundationally, like, court of law important that whoever holds that napkin owns the company.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think they do good shorthand here by saying Miles Facebooked her because... Most people seen the social network and would understand that reference of what happened to Andrew Garfield in that movie getting screwed out of every penny, and that's what he did to Andy, and he did it by saying, Alpha was all my idea in the first place anyway, and I wrote the contracts thusly. And if you could find the napkin in Andy's handwriting that proves Alpha was Andy's idea, she would have more of a leg to stand on in court for a greater percentage of alpha ownership.
3: And this court thing happened like two months ago. That's what's weird, is that... All right, so here's the timeline. Strangers met in a bar 10 years ago. By eight years ago, he's rich and successful with whatever, and now in making these murder events, annual murder party things. And at some point... I believe it was two years ago, he goes to South America to a ayahuasca like, ceremony, takes some hallucinogenics, and basically comes out saying, I want to make an alternate fuel, and that's the deal breaker. Up to that point, Cassandra is more or less fine with all his crazy half-baked ideas, because they've been able to make money at it but she actually believes he has the potential to blow up the world and is willing to walk away from the company because of it how she gets screwed out of it you say it's good shorthand i say it's bad shorthand i actually find myself angry that i can't understand how this what's on the napkin how did she get screwed what did they make all of that there's too many references to hot sauce and not enough like fine details about what went down but
1: the hot sauce is a good joke <laughs> <laughs>
3: it- I mean, you better be here for it. I'll put it that way. It better be a great joke because that is where the movie lives. And I think it's both a strength and ultimately a weakness of this movie is that it would rather spend time spoofing the idea of celebrity tie-ins
2: than to explain these character details. So, Stuart, are you saying that you're not buying Miles's motivation here like don't you get that he's a fraud and he's afraid everybody knows he's oh, yeah. a fraud okay but a good movie a really good
3: movie like the one last time gets into the details a sloppy movie is like eh, i'll just be funny and make references and that's kind of what i feel like is happening here it's just not a solid character work i don't like these characters as much they're either broad or nondescript and their relationships to each other For all the time that we're spending here, it's mostly to ogle cars and to thumb our nose at one percenters. It does not feel particularly tight.
2: I'll say this. I give the conceit of Miles' motivation. I'm with that. I don't need anything more other than that he screwed Cassandra out of her part of the company, and that's a big deal. What I'm having a little trouble with is these friends now. This friend group now, even when we see it in flashback, it feels like a group of people that would never really gel together as a friend group.
3: Right. Or go on to be as successful as they are. Where They like to call themselves disruptors. Bautista even says something like, "disruptors is a symbol. I think that's some kind of Marvel joke. But, like, the idea... I mean, okay, maybe the substitute teacher could be a great chemist. Like, I'll go with that. But why the soccer mom became the governor of Connecticut and is now going to be a senator
1: and all of that... Hmm... I feel like I need more details. It's because he bankrolled her, though. I mean, that's a lot of what it takes in politics.
3: Yeah, but bankrolled her because he got money from something. I mean, again, it's I'm not buying this pyramid scheme. Like, I get, I get the gist of what they're saying, but I feel like, I don't know, I, there needs to be more here. There needs to be more in explaining that. All right, so Birdie, because she had been canceled, was sitting at home wanting to wear sweats... So she had a line of sweats as the pandemic was hitting, but she didn't know what a sweatshop was. And when someone texted her and said, your clothes are being made at a Bangladesh sweatshop, she said, good. That is the only one that really makes sense to me, honestly. The rest of them, Bautista, like,
1: how is he famous? What is... I don't get it. He was a Twitch streamer, and, I mean, that's all it takes to a degree but then he had the rhino pill controversy. And so thanks to Miles help, he was able to reestablish his brand on YouTube. But Miles used his media company to help get all the followers and things on YouTube that he had on Twitch.
3: But he wants to be a newscaster. I mean, again, it's not like I don't get it. I hear the words, I get, I see the thing. It just doesn't feel particularly tight, right? It doesn't feel like they're nailing this of like, oh, I know who this is. They feel broad and easy, like fish in a barrel. It's easy to have contempt for these people. And it just, I don't know. I just, I'm going to just lay it out there. This movie
2: is not as sharp as Knives Out. The
3: knife is dulled.
2: I can feel that to a certain degree, but I also feel like it's a little bit more under a microscope than the original. Because the original, we have all these disparate characters and they have different motivations, but it's all under the umbrella of they're a family. So I think it's a little easier to take all that in. Here, we're expected to treat this friend group as a family. So therefore, we need a little bit something more cohesive at the center of that. And it might not be coming across on screen enough to sell.
3: And they're also doing Last of Sheila. I don't know if you've seen the movie, but they definitely, without spoiling that movie, those people are playing games for half the movie, and then the game gets real at the midpoint. I think that Ryan was trying to
1: emulate that structure, but I'll just say that I feel like Last of Sheila is more successful at it. And I'm kind of down the middle. I see all your complaints, Stuart, but... I also think this movie, especially on Netflix, is being aimed at repeat viewings. And so when you find out, like Justin said, that this has been an investigation all along and that the murder happened before the first frame of this film began, then you can rewatch and start really looking into how was Blanc investigating these people. You know, initially it seems like Blanc is just observing what he's gotten into without really having motivation for doing so. But once you figure out that, then on a second viewing, it really helps tighten, I think, this first hour up.
3: I mean, yes, they need to have a leisurely long day because we're going to replay it. We're going to actually have the second half of this movie be the same as the first from their point of view. And it's not Benoit that's doing the investigation. It is Helen. And that's the big twist. So let's just get to it. So, all right. When the murder thing flops and Benoit spoils it all, they're all, like, talking about maybe leaving. And, again, people are glaring at Cassandra being like, why are you here? Are you mad that we testified against you two months ago? Deal with it. And then all of a sudden, Duke grabs his throat, falls into a glass table, and is dead. And we now have go back. Benoit says the only person that can explain this is Helen. And we start with the idea that he's in the bathtub. Hugh Grant is going to open the door. I guess we're finding out that Benoit is coming out of the closet. I think we knew from the love of show tunes, it was kind of heading that way. But that's a cute little joke that he and Hugh Grant are coupling together during quarantine. And the twin sister of Cassandra comes with her broken box.
2: So this is the burning question that I have. And you guys have seen it twice now. And I'm hoping you have a good answer for me. Because otherwise, it's a gaping plot hole that I don't know that can be fixed. Mm. But why did Miles send a puzzle box to Cassandra, knowing she was dead? Right. Right. No, no. Well, he might have
3: sent
1: it... Before he killed her. He also might have said it to cover his ass as an alibi to be like, oh, I didn't know she was dead. Why would I have sent her this expensive puzzle box?
3: But to your question of if they have been in litigation for years and she was cut out of the company for so long and no one has seen
2: her for so long, why she would still be invited? I don't get it. Right. Like just the reaction of the friend group. Like Mm -hmm. they were all surprised that she was there. So,
3: right. Yeah. If you had just testified against her in court, you would not expect her to get an invite with, to be on the same yacht as you to go to the same party. Right. And they would have cut her out as soon as she had been cut out of the company. Right. You don't keep inviting your enemy to your hangouts.
2: But I mean, even at that, I could see possibly using this weekend as a, you know, a way to try to mend some fences. Okay. I can see that. But if she was dead... Why send her the box? That's the only thing I don't understand.
3: Well, watching it again, you definitely see that Edward Norton is, who is the killer. Let's just get there on that. Miles is very stunned to see. So does he know that this is Helen? Or does he think that Cassandra woke up while being fumigated? Because what he did was he drugged her and left her in a car Well, with the engine running, the garage was, you know, she was
2: going to die, but maybe he thought it had failed. Right. That's the way I read it, is that he assumed that he failed at staging her suicide. I wasn't quite sure on that. That one
1: I was a little bit baffled by, is did he know she was dead? And, you know, the whole point of having Helen show up as Andy is to throw the killer off guard. And yet, nobody seems thrown off guard by it. All right, here's another thing I couldn't follow, and, it, and there
3: might have been some lines to it, but two viewings. So, Andy is found dead.
2: Who called the sister, and why wasn't the story breaking then? I'm not sure who called the sister, but Benoit told her not to notify anybody. But she went right to him somehow. And Blanc said he could pull some strings and
1: keep it out of the papers for a couple of days.
3: Yeah, but how did she find out about it? And not only does she find out about it, but she knows her sister had, like, sleeping pills in her system. So, like, that's autopsy stuff. Like, it's just not as tight, guys, right? This is just not as good.
2: Yeah, the actual murder is much sloppier than the original.
3: Yeah. Now, don't get me wrong. I like Janelle Monae a lot. I like her music. I like her in Hidden Figures. I think she's the standout character in that. And she is a pretty good Marta villain. I do feel like she's got to play the Marta role here. If that first movie was defined by how much we liked the nurse as she tried to cover her tracks... The idea that we have this twin sister who is actually just a third grade teacher from Alabama who watched her sister become bougie and leave her behind and now has to try and see who did the murder. I find her the most compelling character of the bunch. Yes,
2: yeah, she's supposed to be the heart of this movie. And it's the much the way you were lamenting that the mystery didn't kick off early enough. I feel like introducing her as our character that we're supposed to love, comes a little too late in this movie.
3: Right, because we don't like Andy. Andy's all aloof, and I mean, she looks stylish and beautiful with the blonde hair bob and all that, but we can't like Andy. Maybe we like her because she tells these people that they're shitheads, but for the most part, I'm not endeared to Andy at all, but Helen I like, and yes, this is all coming in the second half of the movie. After it seems that Andy has been killed again, you know, she got shot with Duke's gun after he died. And now we're going to find out, basically, I guess that's a mystery hanging over this, is even though we know Helen is already on the case and is going to solve who killed her sister, she
1: may be dying in the process. I really like the performance here, but she is no Marta. But I feel like, as far as the center of this movie goes, they're kind of replicating that structure as before, with the flashback being what endears us to the character... Like you've pointed out, Stuart, this is coming quite a bit later in this movie than Marta's, or at least it feels a lot longer, it's probably only about 15-20 minutes difference. But, yeah, that she is doing this rich bitch, as she calls it, impersonation in order to play Helen and all of this, yeah, try to figure out... Who killed her sister? Now we have a humanizing motivation for a character. And we know the answer to one big mystery. Why is Benoit on the island? Right. Because she
3: just wanted him to go. And it was Benoit's idea to dress her up. And, you know, you have your sister's journal so you can study the way she thinks. And, I mean, it's far-fetched as hell. Again, the the writing in this is just, you know, sometimes Scooby-Doo level. But it's fun. And I do like their chemistry. It's a lot more Benoit this time. I feel like we're getting to know him. We're seeing him in private life more. I don't know that I'm getting to like him that much more than I did in Knives Out. But I do like Helen. And I do feel like she brings out the best in Benoit in the second half.
2: Yeah, and the way the plot's unfolding, we don't find any of this out about Andy and her sister until after Andy is shot. Well, not Andy. Helen is shot. And we see Benoit... Shedding a tear, and at first doesn't make too much sense why he's crying, but then through flashbacks, we get caught up with all this information of the subterfuge and why he's there and who she actually is. And it makes sense. I mean, on a single viewing, I'm following this and I'm on board. I'm like, okay, this is. Draw me back in. Even though we don't have a real mystery, now we do have a mystery that we should be following (laughs) and caring about.
3: And this is where I started to fall asleep the first time and then why I knew I had to come back. Because I was like, we're watching the same movie again. So on one hand, I feel like I already saw it, but I know that they're learning new things and I can't fake (laughs) this. So that was why I went back. It was actually, honestly, I think I only nodded off for maybe about three or four minutes. But in this movie's, you know, thinking, that's a lot of time. Because Andy is going to spend a lot of time running around while Benoit is doing what Benoit did, you know, smoking in the smokeless garden. She is the one actually eavesdropping on Bertie, on Claire. It was Benoit that knew that Duke was mad over whiskey. But she's the one that figures out that Duke and whiskey are actually conspiring, that
1: he actually was cool with her sleeping with... Miles. And I want to give a shout out to Janelle Monet because her performance as Helen is totally different than her performance as Andy. And that
2: shows talent right there. Amen to that. Yeah. I mean, she, a lot of times when you cast one person as twins, it's just, you know, split screen BS and it's the same performance but no this is two totally different performances but believable as twins but miles was with
3: her for years and didn't know she had a twin sister i mean i guess they're making it sound like she just swore off her family i don't know i'm not gonna try this is a dumb plot (laughs) it's a dumb plot it's a dumb plot so that they can do this thing where they can revisit the movie and have it done again it's a narrative trick And Hitchcock was famous for this. He always had a gimmick in all his movies. I feel like this was an attempt to do something kind of fresh. Like, can we play the same day twice and have you find new mysteries in the second telling? I don't know that I get a whole lot more out of her detecting than before. We know about the Bangladesh sweatshop. We know a little bit more about whiskey. I don't know. I still really don't know anything about Lionel.
1: Yeah, he is the least developed of all the characters, honestly. Although the governor is... A close second.
3: Yeah, I I get that they've staked their futures on, you know, her political future, particularly if she's an environmentalist. If she's at the same time peddling clear, it's said that next week, the reason why he has the Mona Lisa is all these world leaders are going to come and he's going to impress him with the Mona Lisa. Then he's going to impress him with this saltwater derived alternative fuel, no emissions thingy that he dreamed up while he was tripping down in Peru. She already knew it was not good, and now to find out that she's got to put it in, like, American households, like, she's got to sign the bill and has, like, created legislation that's going to make that happen and turn every home in America into the Hindenburg, and that he's, you know, again, the chemist that developed it. Yeah, their professional careers are riding on it, but I guess I feel like, I don't know, like, I have sympathy for them. Like, I don't see them as contemptible characters the way that I do Duke and Birdie.
2: Well, that's, that's because reality seeps into your brain there, because something like that would not hinge on the word of two people. It would go through laboratories and independent testing
1: and mm-hmm. all this other
2: stuff before it was allowed to go through like this, you know? It wouldn't be just, oh, a, a governor and a scientist said it's okay, so here we go. And it gives them motives for
1: murder. The murderer doesn't have to be contemptible. The m- murderer could have a uh, understandable motive, but... It's clearly a motive for murder more than you won't make me an anchor on your TV show.
3: Except Miles doesn't get murdered, and we know that. In watching The Day Again and Who Gets Murdered, they have no reason to murder Duke.
2: No, but the idea is that somebody was aiming at Miles with that poison drink.
3: Right, that's right. His drink was drugged. Okay, that's right. Yes. And maybe you didn't notice, and I think it's hard to notice on a first viewing, that when they were spraying everyone in their mouth, that Duke made the comment about there's no pineapple in that, right? Because Duke don't do pineapple.
2: Yeah, that was part of Benoit's roundup when he was explaining the whole mystery. He explained that he remembered Duke being anti-pineapple.
3: Could you possibly have a pineapple allergy that severe? I don't know. (laughs) Maybe <laughs> I'm sure that you could, but wouldn't it be all citrus? Like you would just wouldn't even <laughs> drink anything. You, like I mean, like I wouldn't if it had a lemon peel in it. I wouldn't touch it. I'm asking these questions, and that lets you know how less into this movie I am than I was the first one.
1: But you have all these problems with logic, Stewart. My problem, which does feel like a Scooby Doo or at least more of a comedy movie trope than a film with any dramatic stakes is that she was carrying her sister's journal and the bullet happened to be stopped by the journal instead of actually hitting her. I mean, that is just such a trope in so many different movies that I've seen this in that I think less of this film for doing it.
3: <laughs> yeah, it's it's a little too wacky. Like, I feel like the comedy, there was lots of comedy in the last one, but it was bitter black comedy. And this one feels more farcy. like it's just more like just outlandish kind of mainstream comedy. And I don't
2: think the movie wears it as well. It also loses control of the plot then, because if that doesn't happen, everything Benoit has done has just become an even bigger tragedy. You know, he, he talked this girl into coming onto this island because her sister was murdered to help figure it out. And now she's murdered, too. Yeah, right.
3: But yeah, yeah, instantly she sits up, and before anyone has come to look, including the killer that fired the bullet, which is miraculous, but, like, he's dumping Jeremy Renner's hot sauce on her to make it look like blood, and saying, everyone come inside so
2: I can break it down for you. I have to say, the scene where the hot sauce starts to drip into her nose, I felt that with every fiber in my being, man, that was...
3: (laughs) That was a very good Hitchcockian moment. Like, that felt worthy of Hitchcock, even if it did involve Jeremy Renner hot sauce, who is the kind of celebrity I can imagine actually having hot sauce, (laughs) having heard his music. (laughs) (laughs) But the trick of this is, you know, it's always dicey when you want to say, like, there's somebody that's an idiot, and, like, now they have to, like, be dumb enough that, like, the dumbest person in the audience doesn't feel like they're being made fun of. Like... Okay, he's in the Greek Isle, he owns the Greek island, and he doesn't know the name of the sea that he's in? Like, hmm. It just kind of is falling apart, right? Here at the end, the idea that he
2: doesn't know the right words. and You think that's falling apart? I think that just speaks to him being a shallow person. He just wants everything to look a certain way, but without putting in the actual work. That's his whole character. Agreed. Yeah, I know, but, like,
3: believing that you're in the Aegean Sea and not the Ionian Sea, like, that's it's kind of hard to believe if you built an entire glass onion structure there.
2: I mean, it always kind of goes to show the amount of wealth he's accumulated. He just wanted an awesome island somewhere fancy.
3: I guess you could go with that, and I guess if I were more into the movie, I would think that was hilarious. I just feel like, yes, the interpretation of this character is, I don't know, hmm. How to put it? They're offering him up to be hated in a way that feels too easy. Chris Evans was contemptible, but like still had was something relatable about him. I feel like everyone would have complete contempt, including the people that, you know, Elon Musk, you know, like I feel like
2: even the people that he's trying to be, this character is just, I don't know. I can kind of see where you're coming from and that the only thing being offered to us as an audience is, hey, maybe be jealous of this guy's wealth and lifestyle. And that's not enough.
3: Yeah. And then hate him because he uses the wrong words or something. And like, I don't know. It Like, they could do better than this. But I do like the idea that she throws the disruptor thing back in his face. What is satisfying, What the case that he made, and it is true, I think, of our age, is that people that disrupt things, again, it's, they, they don't call themselves innovators. They call themselves disruptors, is the idea that they're willing to break the thing First, that everyone wouldn't mind being broken, secretly wants to be broken, but then breaks the thing that nobody, they dare to be an asshole, essentially. They do something contemptible and call it brave. And there is a really cool line that Benoit says to Bertie at some point that it's dangerous to mistake speaking without thought for speaking the truth. And I think that's really calling out what is wrong with this culture is that they believe that they're doing something amazing by essentially being shitheads. They're they're just destroying things that people like. And I love the fact that Helen is going to beat them at their own game, that she starts by breaking out. There's all these annoying glass sculptures all over the place uh, that look like uh, other people's arts, famous art throughout time that, yeah, they're just tacky imitations, break them. And then there's the Mona Lisa, right? (laughs) Nobody actually wants her to go that far. It's one thing to destroy this stupid glass onion. Yeah, sure, throw his stupid, unstable, chemically imbalanced fuel into the air duct and and see what happens. But to actually have the gall to hate someone so much that they're willing to burn the Mona Lisa to burn them. Yeah, that's a disruptor, all right.
2: (laughs) It also ties a bow on it, though, because, I mean, his whole thing is he wanted to be mentioned in the same breath as the Mona Lisa, and now forever he will. He'd be the guy Mm -hmm. who destroyed it, so... He destroyed it.
3: He couldn't even understand the ramifications because he's like, your tantrum did nothing. I'm like, dude, people are coming, and France is going to want to know what happened to that. You're not going to be able (laughs) to, like, get out of this. You burnt it up, and yes, eventually... It'll be figured out That's because you have this new fuel. And you're right. The whole idea that this fuel could be put into America without proper testing and all of that. I mean, I don't know. There's a lot of recalls going on. Safety standards are not what they used to be post-COVID. But uh, it's still hard to believe that somebody could come up with something this unstable and dangerous and pawn
1: it off into every household in America. This ending is... Not as satisfying as the last one, you know. You like to see the killers get hauled off to jail and not just, oh, we're taking away your future, but you're still a billionaire. You're still, you know, one of the top 0.1%. So it's not like they were really hurt that bad.
2: Well, he's also going to be charged with murder. He did murder Andy. Yeah.
3: And that's why the friends finally turn on them as they realize that they're dispensable. And again, he can do nothing for them. Like they, they were sort of in his debt and now, yeah, they're free to say the truth. It's sloppy, but I i feel it come up and it's coming. He's not going to be able to rebuild. No more Matisse's in the
1: bathroom. Like this is, that <laughs> life is over for him. <laughs> and that's pretty much where it ends though. It doesn't have much of a denouement after this. Yep. There had been an earlier scene of Helen and Benoit talking
3: on a park bench, looking out at the water. And that's how they choose to end it, with the police rolling in, the low tide starting. You can see the Banksy starting to come up out of the water. And soon, yeah, justice will descend on this island. And yeah,
1: Benoit is presumably going to go off to another great case. But was this
2: a great case? Justin Stewart. Do you recommend Glass Onion? Justin. You know, coming into this, I was in a little bit of a weird predicament because I hadn't seen the first one, and I watched the first one the night before I went to see the second one. So within two days, I now have obviously a bigger picture of what this Knives Out universe is, but I didn't know going in. I didn't know what the first movie was going to be about. I really ended up enjoying it. And even going into the second one, I didn't watch many trailers. I didn't know exactly what it was about, but I have put together that instead of following the family from the first movie were following Benoit Blanc. So he's gonna be our through story. This is what a knives out is gonna mean. It's gonna mean we're following the cases of this detective. And I'm on board for that. If Ryan Johnson wants to keep doing this, I'm fine with it. But this one felt a little bit less than the original. I'm not saying I disliked it, I'm not saying I hated it, I'm not saying I think it failed. It just feels like there was some magic potion with the original that just wasn't here. And I'm not saying it's a bad movie because I enjoyed it. I laughed along with it. I followed the mysteries. I enjoyed quite a bit of it, but it doesn't stand up as solidly as the original. We talked about a lot of plot holes. We talked about a lot of things that we can nitpick. And at the end of the day, it just didn't have that same heart. And I think watching some of the extras from the original, Ryan Johnson was really talking about the heart of that movie. And I'd be interested to see if he felt like there was still heart here or this is the best they could do in a COVID world, you know? And I think that's what kind of has me excited knowing that there's going to be another one. It's like another shot, another bite at this apple without those COVID restrictions that they were facing two years ago while making this movie. But I feel like that's really, even though the movie talked about it, it's not an excuse for a subpar outing. So I'm excited to see where they go with this franchise. This one I'm still going to recommend, but obviously with the note that it's below the original. Stewart.
3: Butter knives out, right? Like it's not as sharp. It's not nearly as pointed in its critiques and its humor. I mean, these characters can be kind of nasty. Don't get me wrong, but the you're right. The heart. Don't forget about the fact that there's, amid of all that backbiting, you still cared about a character. And here I feel like, Okay, one, the script just asked a lot more. It's a little bit more dawdling. It spends a lot more time on Layers of Onion doesn't want to get to the center. And then I also think that this cast just isn't as impressive. Like, I really loved the cast from the first one. And here, Kate Hudson, Dave Bautista, these are not favorites of mine. They're kind of giving broad predictable performances we didn't even talk about peg but like i don't even know why the assistant (laughs) character is here there's just a lot of dead weight there's just a lot of it's a lot of time spent with people that aren't very interesting so that we can feel better about mocking how bad they are and even miles even edward norton i feel like i just wanted him to be more complicated than he ended up being so he's shallow and somehow somehow Big somehow wound up having too much money and destroying the Mona Lisa. Yes, there is still some sharpness here. I still do enjoy some of that retro murder mystery stuff. I love Last of Sheila. So a pale imitation of that is still going to ride high with me. There's still some political commentary here that's spicy. I'm still a little mezzo-mezzo on Benoit Blanc, I'll be honest. He is a bigger feature of this one, but I still feel like the character I like was Janelle Monet's Helen. And, yeah, I don't know. Like, they're going to need to find a Watson for him for the third movie, because I'm not in love with Daniel Craig yet. So... Yeah, it's a lesser movie, but I, I want to be clear, I would give this like a B minus. Like, it's it's okay, it's worth seeing, mild
1: recommend, but it is a far cry from the original. And I'm much more on Justin's side of the fence than on Stewart's in regards to this, but I see everything Stuart is saying, and it just doesn't bother me as much. And perhaps part of the reason is because... I do like Daniel Craig in this movie. For the first half of the movie, he is the heart of the film. He's the one who's our point of view character. As he's introduced to this Motley crew, we're introduced to them. And I like him a lot more in this film than I did in the last. To the point that I even stop noticing how bad that accent is. (laughs) It just becomes his voice instead of something that's constantly distracting me. I also, I think, maybe enjoy this cast a bit more than you do. I like Dave Bautista in a lot of things I've seen him in, and yes, that is quite a bit more than just Guardians of the Galaxy. I've seen My Spy, and I thought he was good in Bond, also with Daniel Craig. I like Katherine Hahn as a persona. She was great in the Bad Mom series. Kate Hudson, always pleasant. I like this cast, not as much as the last one, just because there's not the, oh, hey, it's Don Johnson. Oh, hey, it's Jamie Lee Curtis factor. But I'd say I'd put them all on par or above Michael Shannon level. The mystery, when it finally kicks in, keeps me engaged. And yes, Janelle Monet is a standout in this film. It's a very solid recommend. But like both of you, I agree, you know, maybe not butter knife, but maybe paring knife out, you know, something a little bit (laughs) more sharp. Mm -hmm.
3: Yeah, there is an opportunity to be sharper next time. And again, the sequels can sometimes go this way. I wasn't expecting it to be as good, but I do hope for a little bit better whenever we get this third movie because they bought two right netflix spent 465 million to get two movies and that means that they're gonna do this all in what three more years 2025
2: 24
1: they're calling for it yeah without covid i would say 2024 two years do we know
2: anything concept
1: does ryan johnson even know
2: Good point. I'd prefer to keep it the way I've I've experienced this franchise up to now. It's just kind of being in the dark about it. Now that I know what the franchise is and it's it's the tales of Benoit Blanc, that's all I need to know. You know, start hearing who the cast is or whatever, and then just get ready to sit down and watch it.
1: Sure. Yeah, I'm game for it. I'd be excited for another one. I still think both of these were very solid films, and I can't wait to see what Ryan Johnson comes up with next.
3: Yeah, stay here and don't go back to Star Wars. That's for sure. In the meantime, what are we going to do next? Well, it's a new year. Uh, This weekend, don't know if you know or not. New Year's, ringing it in, 2023. Or is it 1984? We are up to the third installment of our Century of Dystopia and talking about probably the most famous book of all of them and a movie that, well, it's got a lot of John Hurt and a lot of your rhythmics.
1: I like both those things in moderation.
3: And with the new year, let's start with a really old movie, like a century (laughs) old movie. Here's the good news. We're covering Dracula. People have asked us about Universal Monsters for years and years. And guess what? Nick Cage, of all people, is doing a Dracula movie in 2023. In order to build up to that, we are covering Dracula movies that Universal Studios made. And Nosferatu, the unofficial beginnings, the first Dracula to end up on the big screen was, I guess, a a fan film is what you could call it. The Germans made Nosferatu. It's a silent movie classic, and we're covering that 1921 movie, the oldest movie we've ever covered, on now playing here on the main feed
1: next week. I'm sure people are just salivating at the chance to bite into that episode.
3: Yeah, well, you know, Dracula. It's Dracula. He's a star. Nosferatu, my memory is he's visually one of the most impressive Draculas.
2: Well, get ready to read.
1: (laughs) I actually did a Books and Nachos on the book Dracula already, so it's already out there. Isn't Nosferatu a silent film with placards? Yes, it is. Oh, read that, (laughs) yes. Yes. (laughs) Yes. All right, well, thank you all for staying with Now Playing this year. I posted to the Facebook group, we got some amazing statistics this calendar year from you listeners. We produced over 5,000 minutes of content (laughs) this year, and that's just on the main feed. (laughs) So, thank you for listening to Now Playing. If you're a supporter, a patron, or a donor, thank you for supporting Now Playing. Hopefully, you can join us for 1984 this Friday. And until next time, we gotta do this more often.
3: Strange case from the start.
0: A case with a hole in the middle. A donut. I feel the noose tightening. One central piece, and if it reveals itself, the fog would lift. Thank you for listening to this Now Playing Podcast movie review. We hope you enjoyed the show.
1: You guys fans?
3: Big fan. I'm a big fan.
0: Help us spread the word about this show by leaving a five-star review on Stitcher, Podbean, iTunes, or your podcast store of choice you will find me a respectful, quiet, passive observer
1: of the truth.
0: Want more reviews like this one? In the archives section of NowPlayingPodcast.com, you'll find more than 1,000 in-depth movie reviews from our panel of hosts.
1: Are you baiting me, detective?
0: On our site, you can hear reviews for every installment in the world's biggest film franchises, including the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Star Wars, Spider-Man... Batman, X-Men, James Bond, Middle Earth, Jurassic Park, Fast and Furious, and Transformers.
1: I expect it's going to be about something, if not
3: extraordinary, then at least interesting.
0: Plus, we have individual movie reviews such as Titanic, E.T., Inception, Big Hero 6, Ready Player One, Pulp Fiction, Apocalypse Now, Dr. Strangelove, and hundreds more. The game is afoot. Hey, Watson. And come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com next Tuesday for another all-new movie review podcast. I
3: think this could be the best thing to happen to all of you.
0: Support from listeners like you keeps Podcast on the air. You do as I say, and everything will be just fine. You can donate directly by tapping the support button at NowPlayingPodcast.com. So how about it, Watson? And you can join our crowdfunding campaign for early access to new episodes, exclusive reviews, and bonus reviews.
1: I trust your kind heart.
0: Need more now playing? Subscribe to our In Focus weekly newsletter for exclusive digital download giveaways, celebrity interviews, behind-the-scenes insights, and more. Sign up through the subscribe page on our website and get it delivered to your inbox every Friday.
1: I anticipate the
2: terminus of Gravity's Rainbow.
0: Now Playing Podcast is produced by Arnie Carvalho.
2: You know, this is an
0: interesting and efficient method of murder. Associate produced by Jason Latham. My presence will be ornamental. Now playing is edited by Heath and Arnie. Damn that I don't get more tired every day. Tired of what I do. Now playing credits read by Brock. I think you have something you want to tell me. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the views of Vanganza Media Incorporated. Everyone can lie.
1: Well, almost everyone.
0: (laughs) Venganza Media Incorporated is not affiliated with, and this podcast has not been prepared, approved, or licensed by any entity that created the film analyzed herein. All movie clips and music included in this podcast are the intellectual property of their respective copyright holders. They are included here for the purpose of review and no infringement is intended.
1: So I guess I will find the right lawyers.
0: Now Playing podcast is an exclusive trademark of and may not be used without the express written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. This
3: is stupid with two O's.
0: Now Playing is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2022, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved.
1: Who is that guy? And why are we doing all this again? This is-
3: She's going to take this box to the next character. Why do I want to call
1: him Benoît? Benoit. Benoit, thank you, yes. Benoit, like balls. Yes. Uh, that's why I just keep calling him Blanc. Yeah. I like Dave Bautista in a lot of things I've seen him in, and yes, that is quite a bit more than just Guardians of the Galaxy. I've seen my spy, and I've seen... He, I thought he was... What else was he in recently that I just... Uh, Blade Runner? Briefly, but I don't know that that counts. Right. I'm
3: like, if you're going (laughs) to sing the praises of that, I'm like, yeah, he was a good heavy.